Today on the podcast, the SEC's new climate proposal and the accountants who love it. We talk about all the climate change data the companies will have to report now and about who's going to tally it all. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Last week, the SEC unveiled a long-awaited proposal that outlines a boatload of data that companies will have to disclose to their investors and to the broader public. And those rules center on climate change. It's significant for two reasons, or at least two reasons. One, the way corporate climate disclosures work now, with some exceptions, is on a more or less voluntary basis. For example, there are guidelines from the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which I should say is chaired by Michael Bloomberg, but those guidelines don't have the force of law. But also, another important aspect of the SEC's proposed rules is just how far they go. Companies won't just have to disclose their own emissions, but also emissions from their supply chain and even in some case from their customers. We're going to talk about all of this with Bloomberg News sustainability editor Eric Rostin and Bloomberg tax reporter Amanda Icone. I'm going to talk with Amanda in a bit about how lucrative these new rules could be for the accounting industry. But first, I asked Eric exactly what was in the plan unveiled by the SEC last week. There is a lot in it. It is 500 pages or more. It's been in development in some ways for years. The SEC in earnest has been working on it for about a year. And the gist is that it requires publicly traded companies to disclose to their investors and to file in their SEC reports what their levels of carbon emissions are. And part of the complexity of of why it requires so many hundreds of pages is that it's it's not one number and there's no meter on the side of the factory that tells you what the carbon emissions are. In uh, some cases, it's easy to calculate. Um, the, the experts call the different categories of emissions scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. Uh, scope one being uh, direct emissions, like stuff you burn in, your, in the, the fleet of your, of your automobiles, if you own them, or your buses, or whatever it may be. Scope two is like purchased uh, energy through like heating or electricity. And then scope three, which is sort of a monster, is uh, like supply chain and consumer use emissions. Right. I w- well, I would definitely want to get into scope three in a little bit. But first, I wanted to draw the distinction here between a company's carbon emissions, their contribution to the problem of climate change, and a company's climate risks. For climate risks, it seems like it's a no-brainer that this would be in the the SEC's uh, jurisdiction here that, you know, Investors need to know if a company faces risks due to climate change or anything else. But why the company's contribution to climate change? That seems like it's a little bit outside of the where the SEC usually operates. Can you talk a little bit about that? So, uh, yeah, it's a great question and, uh, and a really important one. It's a lot of things related to this are maybe either actually or charged uh, to be outside of the SEC's regular scope because so much of climate change is just deeply weird and our institutions are just not prepared to to deal with it head on. And uh, the the, the people who really uh, analyze companies' emissions talk about two different categories. There's, There's physical risks from climate change, which are obvious enough. The increased risks from uh, from extreme weather events that we're already seeing and that are largely, uh, in many cases, attributable to climate change. 
Then there's also what they call transition risks. Uh, and, and these are a uh, diverse basket of risks that uh, may apply to companies and, and hurt or, or help their value. And having a lot of emissions is a problem, particularly if uh, a jurisdiction, you know, a national jurisdiction, a regional jurisdiction like European Union or even subnational jurisdictions, as we see in, uh, in some parts of the world, require uh, carbon pricing. That's a good point that, you know, so to sort of rephrase what you're saying, it sounds like a company's emissions are its risks. Absolutely. And there's also in addition to the fact that governments may actually levy fees on emissions, there's also reputational risks. And, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of companies attacked uh, by consumers, by investors for uh, for not doing anything with their substantial emissions. So let's get back to scope three, what you were talking about, which are these sort of indirect uh, emissions from their the company's supply chain or from the company's products being used. I have to imagine that's really, really hard to, to quantify. How are companies going to do this? There are methods, and it, it, is, it is a difficult exercise, uh, but there's a way to do it, and companies have been doing it for years. Uh, you know, companies do a lot of hard, complicated things, and this is a new methodology. You know, a, a lot of it deals with, with just analysis of, like, what are your biggest risks? Who are your biggest suppliers? What are your biggest factories? Um, and, and they're not asking for a, a, a line item of literally every mass of, of carbon that comes out of a car in your fleet. Yeah. Um, it's asking for, for judgment. And like if 80% of your emissions come from 10 suppliers, then uh, you figure out the emissions from those 10 suppliers, often by talking to them, and you, you extrapolate. You know, it's not, not an exact science, but, uh, but what is? Well, let's now talk about how we're going to verify these reports. Uh, Amanda, one of the interesting things about the proposal is that the scope three details are not going to be audited under this proposal, but everything else is going to be. Uh, who's going to be doing this auditing and how are they going to do it? Sure. Well, it's first, you know, just circling back to what Eric was just talking about, it's important to remember that all of this are, these are all estimates, right? There's no hard numbers. Just like he said, there's no thing on the side of the building collecting how much emissions are being emitted, right? That's not how it works. There's formulas and how, you know, based on this core footage. And there are frameworks out there that help companies do this. To Eric's point, they've been doing this for years. Um, the, what the SEC is putting up maybe more specificity around what they should be reporting, kind of a baseline, because there's a lot of variation right now in what companies are and aren't reporting voluntarily. And, you know, one of the, the things the SEC is asking for is for someone outside of the company to come in and give these estimates a second look like how accurate are they and this this happens with financial statements since time immemorial like this is you know nothing new when it comes to earnings loss profit that kind of thing right i mean the difference here is that these are not financial metrics financial accounting standards are very well established they're very rigorous complex uh they're they're they have a long history and accountants are very comfortable working with that world. This is a brand new world. This is, uh, you know, the accountants really haven't been involved until this point. And the SEC has also said it doesn't have to be an accounting firm that does that outside verification. It could be an engineering firm. It could be some other sort of boutique firm that's already been doing this kind of work. Because, again, we're talking about some sort of science-based engineering type calculus. But it's still an estimate. And 
accountants test and verify estimates all the time. They they also test processes like you know cybersecurity, um, all sorts of computer systems, blockchain. I mean, if a company has it, an accountant can come in and test whether or not it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, whether or not you follow the process correctly, and whether or not investors at the end of the day can rely on the information. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about your story on this when it came out is that uh, it seems like the big four, I mean, there are four big accounting firms or audit firms, they're not really that involved in this. Uh, you kind of alluded to this earlier that, you know, they this is like a different world for them. So who's going to be doing the audits here? I mean, is it going to be like small, you know, I think you've reported it's smaller engineering firms. Is, do I have that right? Yeah, in the U.S., because we have this voluntary reporting system, the companies can choose whether or not they have these metrics verified, and they can choose who does it. And um, in the U.S., because it's a voluntary system, they've been picking engineering firms, boutique consulting firms that, that specialize in, in this kind of reporting. Um, and it's not been the accounting firms. And in Europe and other places, that's flipped. Um, Europe is already inching its way towards requiring mandatory assurance. And so a lot of companies have already begun working with their accounting firms to get that, you know, to, to work up to meeting that requirement. And so you see accountants much more involved in other parts of the world. Um, and, and here the SEC has, has left it open. They're willing to consider not just it being the purview of the accounting firms, but that allowing engineering firms and other consulting firms to jump into this market too. The other thing I was thinking about when I was reading your story is that this is going to be really lucrative for these firms that can do this kind of climate accounting. And I wonder if we're going to see a wave of acquisitions where the big four, you know, just snatch up these small firms because they're like, you know, all these companies need to do this now and we want to do it for them. Right. Well, so, you know, it's funny, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce mentioned that in her dissent. She said that this could be the biggest boom since the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which required another type of audit over internal controls. But, you know, I think here again, the SEC is leaving it open to other firms to provide this. They've also suggested a, a really big caveat that might open the door for what you're suggesting, which is the big four to bring in these smaller boutique firms into their mix because the SEC wants these firms to be independent. In other words, you can't help a company set up its controls, set up its data collection, set up its reporting processes, and then go in and audit that information. You're not allowed to audit your own work in the world of the SEC. You know, so companies are going to have to decide who they hire to help them set up those processes and who they want to do the assurance, but it can't be the same firm. So it's possible we could see some acquisitions here. The big four have already predicted that this is a multi, potentially billion dollar business for them, not just on the assurance side, but also on those consulting services. Because, um, you know, a lot of the largest companies are, are well on their way to meeting these proposed requirements, but there's a lot of smaller companies that aren't. And, and let's remember, so the SEC is talking about both the largest U.S. companies and really kind of mid to smaller tier companies, and they're going to have to have assurance potentially. There's a, a lot of activity, or at least an increasing amount of activity in something called climate tech, uh, which is a very broad category that covers everything from uh, mobility and, and energy to stuff like we're talking about. Uh, PwC did a report in December that tallied up the year in um, 
in climate tech investment. And there were just uh, 73 deals in their category of climate management and reporting uh, that totaled about $800 million. And a lot of these companies are doing the things that we're talking about, which is writing software uh, or, or helping companies understand their, their footprints. You know, the next, the next sales force for, uh, for carbon is out there. So finally, uh, let's, we've been talking about the companies and the, you know, how they're going to comply with this and, and I guess the burden on them to report this information. Let's talk about the other side of the coin here, which are the people who will be receiving this information, the investors and the public, I guess, more broadly. How do uh, green investors, people, you know, ESG investors, how are they feeling about this? Are they, you know, popping the champagne bottles here or do they wish that this would go a little bit further? I think there's not a lot of popping of champagne bottles in climate change to begin with. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. I actually, I think it's worth um, uh, it's worth pointing out as much as possible that you know people aren't doing this recreationally. You know, the last eight years are the hottest eight years in the 140 plus year record. You know, it was 123 degrees in Southwest Canada last summer, and the day after, the town that. Uh, you know, set that record, it was destroyed by wildfire, you know, so uh, coastlines are creeping in, um, that's going to have real impact on real estate, it's going to have real impact on tourism. Uh, and uh, when everything is changing, you know, the dollar signs of everything will change. So that's, that's why we're doing this to begin with. Um, now, forward looking uh, investors for at least 20 years have been trying to get a rule like this happen. You know, one proxy is a group called CDP, which used to be the Carbon Disclosure Project, started about 20 years ago. And what they do is they harness investors' voices together uh, and ask companies to, to disclose their, you know, their emissions. And that's how a lot of this got started. So a lot of this is just kind of standard operating procedure at this point, and the SEC just adds muscle to something. You know, half of the uh, Russell 1000 uh, already do something like this with varying quality. Half of the Russell 1000 does not. Uh, and I think moving the whole market into a, a common language is, uh, is what um, proponents of this are celebrating. I, I would just add to that that I think there's relief that the U.S. is moving in the same direction as much of the rest of the world. I mean, Asia's moving in the same direction, Canada, Europe, that that, that the U.S. is not going to be an outlier. And there's, you know, because U.S. companies are global, they're going to have to report on these metrics no matter what the U.S. does. And they want consistency in that reporting no matter where they have to report it because they don't want to have to do it five different ways for different places. And, and there's, a, there's a real push by the largest companies to get this kind of global consistency. And, and, and this is moving in that direction. And I would also say that CFOs and controllers are probably relieved because they, again, they're accountants, right? They like rules. They like to know what the rules are. Just tell me what it is and I'll do it. They'll make it happen. Their uh, in-house general counsels down the hall might have a very different opinion of this proposal, but you know, corporate accounting departments are already moving to meet these requirements in part because they're coming and they're coming fast from Europe and they're gonna have to do it no matter what the US does. So there is some relief here. Um, but the work isn't over and, the, you know, investors have a lot of demands beyond greenhouse gas emissions. This isn't the end of the road, so to speak. But it is a major it is a major shift in, in securities regulation here in the U.S., to be sure. 
That was Amanda Icone with Bloomberg Tax and Eric Rostin with Bloomberg News. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter. If you have anything on your mind, we use the handle at BLaw. I am at David B. Schultz. That's B as in be careful. Friday is April 1st. Don't believe anything. That's also a B. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and see you next week. You don't need to be a judge to be interested in our nation's laws and legal institutions. Just like you don't need to have a law degree to be curious about the inner workings of courts, law firms, and law schools. That's where we come in. My name's Adam Allington, and I'm the host of Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. Uncommon Law is where public policy, storytelling, and the law are combined. We explore big topics ranging from tech policy to free speech to race and gender diversity. So please give us a listen. You can subscribe and download today. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much.